Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode is sponsored by EY. Money is changing, both in form and function. Money Reimagined is about the changing nature of money, digital currencies, and various topics related to finance, blockchain technology, artificial intelligence, and more. Michael Casey and Sheila Warren walk us through the dynamic and evolving nature of the global economy and the implications for businesses, governments, and individuals as they must adapt to new payment methods and technologies. Welcome to Money Reimagined. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey coming to you along with my co-host Sheila Warren. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Make sure, of course, you listen to us on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Tell us what you think. You can email us at podcast at coindesk.com. The subject line, of course, is Money Reimagined. So as Sheila and I often do, we're going to be talking a little bit about the political environment, the uh, ongoing regulatory challenges uh, and looking at it as we often do from not just the US perspective, but the global perspective today. And I suppose you know one starting point is just to look at the big story out of Washington this past week, two weeks, three weeks, perhaps four weeks, maybe it's been, and that is a debt ceiling debate, somewhat of a, uh, I suppose, adjacent topic for crypto, but one, Sheila, that I think is relevant in the sense that it's the most magnified version of how divided um, US politics is in general. And the fact that, you know, you've got McCarthy there trying to scramble to get a deal that knowing that his uh, hardliners are never going to like it. And then, you know, progressives on the on the left also pushing back and somewhere in the middle of that Biden and the Speaker of the House having to find this, this middle ground. And it just shows you how fraught US politics are. And of course, that's relevant for crypto, I think, because you know, as many people have started to note, crypto, which was for some time, it seemed uh, blissfully free of uh, these heavy politicization. There's always been big divisions around crypto, but it wasn't necessarily a partisan issue. People feel like is increasingly becoming that, that now, you know, sides are being lined up between sort of the progressive left being opposed to it and this, you know, somewhat libertarian-ish, you know, Republican movement being in favor of it. And that just sort of leads us now into this dark world of even more division and sort of the classic gridlock problems of Washington. So, you know, a really, I don't know, I think it's a metaphor or at least a, an indication of the challenges that we continue to face in this part of the world. But you just got back 
from uh, London and Brussels. And from what I gather, kind of a different story there in terms of the way that this uh, industry is viewed and being treated by the political community. Yeah. I mean, it was last week was a just a huge week. I think the team over here at the council was, I was in Brussels and London. We had someone testifying in Albany uh, on a bill uh, potentially up in Albany in New York State. Uh, there was a ton going on, of course, in Washington with the debt limit, you know, brinksmanship that uh, that now it seems behind us possibly, maybe. Uh, <laughs> so huge week, maybe. I think. But, but yeah, general takeaway. I mean, I think being in Brussels post the final vote on Mika was pretty profound because now, of course, there's a process around that. It's shifting into what's called the implementation phase. Mika, uh, Mika you know, being the markets, markets and crypto assets. Bill, just to sorry. Yeah, it's the most comprehensive digital assets regulation that exists in the entire world. And so uh, it represents compromise of a coalition across Europe, many years in the making, you know, kind of the, the, I have to say, like observing how the Europeans enact policy versus the Americans. And at this point, the Brits who are feeling their way post Brexit is really instructive and quite telling. Because certainly in Europe, you've got even more competing interests than you have in the United States. For sure, when you've got the country mm, theory, level, yeah. You've yeah. Got, yeah, you've got the party level, the country level, yeah. you know, all of that comes. It should be far more fragmented in reality. You would right? think, and yet they yeah. got it done, right? And so it's yeah. fascinating to kind of observe that. Now, what's interesting, of course, in Europe now is now it's left a bit the political sphere because they passed this bill, and now it's with the regulators, kind of in the implementation. Well, what does this mean, right? And uh, that's a place I think we'd love to be in the United States to have legislation that was passed. And then you're kind of like, okay, well, what, do, what do all these words now mean? What is that? How do we take something that might be a bit vague to hmm. get through and then put rules around it? Meanwhile, in <laughs> o- London- Oh, to be in that, oh, to have that problem. Oh, yeah. to have that problem, right? In London, I mean, fascinating because the questions there were very much, how can we compete with Europe? Is the, uh, the US even a remote player in this anymore? Because they're really? not necessarily wow. perceived to be. Well, I mean, that's where we are. This is the, real, the factual reality of our situation. And then how do we attract industry here to London are the questions I get in London. So it, the that, contrast is pretty wild. And that sounds really interesting from a post-Brexit perspective as well, right? Yep. So they're so keen to make sure that they are relevant still, I suppose. And this is they, they see it as a competitive edge, maybe, yeah. Well, I think that's right. The other thing that's very interesting, Michael, is the difference in the understanding of what this opportunity is. So in Europe, there very much is a Web3 data identity you know, kind of sentiment. There's also a, a strong focus on financial services, but it's, it's, it's a bit more balanced. And that in part represents the timing at which Mika negotiations started, You know, where we are, all of that, right? In London, it is still very much a financial services focus. That right. makes sense. Makes One sense. is a financial hub, right? Now, the Web3 discussion is not really as prominent at all. And in the US, I mean, who knows, depends where you go. But right now, the focus is all on scams and, you know, fraud and, and all this kind of stuff and speculative investment because of, you know, recent, well, not that recent anymore, because of events, because of the media hype cycle, that what's what happens here, really, really, really interesting. So, you know, as always, I think you have to, as, as we always do on this show, the awareness that this is a global opportunity you know, there is ideally there will be global harmonization that's going to come through, whether it's the FSB or IOSCO or the Basel, I'm just throwing out acronyms, like all these different kinds of bodies that do come together to think about global standards on anything as massive as this opportunity has to be, you know, fed into the discussion along with different countries and the approach that they're taking, which is often in this world we now live in, not so much forward thinking as kind of hyper reactive to whatever dominates the headlines in the news. 
So symbiosis there is pretty powerful, but it really does have effects that are quite far reaching. So a a couple of thoughts on all this, lots of interesting ways to unpack this, but like one thing that come to mind is that we are in the process here at Coindesk of pulling together this thing we're very proud of called the Consensus at Consensus Report, which was drawn out of 11 separate meetings that we held during the consensus uh, gathering in Austin at the, end of, at the end of April. And one of them, one of the charrettes, as we call them, these 25... What was the word you used for them? Yeah, it was a great lovely. word, yeah. charrette. charrette. It usually yeah, it means like yeah. something like a, you know, a, a gathering of people to discuss and debate a yeah. issue of some sort. And I think that maybe now in retrospect, which is just airing the dirty laundry, or at least showing the sausage-making process, I'm saying, yeah, maybe mm-hmm. we'll do that a little, little differently. Because I think that maybe... The participants in that case may have overread it to mean the search for some sort of multilateral framework that the IMF and the BIS or somebody would come up with something. Whereas I think what I was really looking for when I framed that was like, no, no, how are you guys going to coordinate in some way? Because you're going to have to because it's a global technology, right? right? Because what was interesting is they came back and saying, it's too early for that, the, the global part of it. The most important thing we have to do now is the United States, right? That without the US, we're stuck. And I think that regardless of whether my interpretation of how we'd frame the question is right or wrong, I do think there is some some truth to this issue. Is there a world in which crypto regulation globally does move forward without the United States? Or, or is the US still just uh, so important that at the end of the day, unless there's some resolution in Washington, there's just, just huge question mark over anything that anybody operating this space can deal with and therefore crypto itself is sort of constrained thoughts please my dear i mean where to begin you know i think what's really interesting i'm going to take this in a totally different direction than you might expect but i think what's really interesting to me is the extent to which we view crypto in isolation not just from political and geographic realities but from technical realities as well right and something we had actually had an episode recently on the show talking about crypto and ai and thinking about the intersection of those two things, right? And so I think that when you think about something multilateral, I my mind went not to kind of institutions, institution building mm-hmm. and things like that, but it kind of went to the technical architecture of things, right? And how that right, also yeah. really ought to, we don't have like a multilateral conversation within technology. Like I said, totally different direction than I thought than you probably intended, but there's a lot of- No, but I think that's actually the smartest place to go. I, th- I think that in it's, fact, the real question is, it, I don't know, sorry to cut you off, but I, I think yeah. that interesting you think about the architecture, there were conversations about the early early days of the internet about what yeah. the quote unquote it wasn't called multilateral it was called multi stakeholder. That's but it right. Was, how do you deal with this? Like, how do you govern this uh, from a global perspective? And that's really not necessarily a question about governments or multilateral. Correct. What context are you placing it in? And yeah. so the funny thing is that you know I obviously now have leaned in heavily into the policy space, but you know not that recently in the past I was thinking uh, about a much broader stakeholder set, which still yeah. and all the governance work that you did at the WIF, right? Yeah. That's right. And a big question really is about that the governance of that overall architecture and how do you see this fitting in? And so and now going back to so what I said about it's so important in the age of AI, it's so important, just, right? And going back to what I just said about Europe the UK and the US, what's been fascinating is in Europe, when you think about the frame on the conversation, it really is about this much broader assumption that some kind of decentralized technology, whatever we call it eventually, whatever, who knows, is going to wind up being the new internet and the architecture of the internet. That's what you're hearing out of Europe. Out of Europe. That's kind of been the frame for a little while, right? Because they think so much about data and they think so much about identity, right? Because right now the big thing's happening. There's this thing called the European Data Act. That's a really big deal. It has implications for, you know, London's still feeling its way, UK, but in the United States. 
the discussion is so narrowly about only what we call, I think, the apps on this stuff, right? Like it's just about the financial services piece of it. And there really isn't much discussion happening much of at all at the federal level at this point in time about that underlying architecture of what we're talking about here. And I think the danger, as I've said many times, including on the show, is that if you regulate for the narrow use case you really miss out on the opportunity of what this is, which is much, much, much bigger, yeah. both a hedge against some of the dangers of AI, which we can have a whole, I know you wrote a piece about that recently, Michael, we'll have a whole discussion about that. The dangers of AI is a hedge against that, you know, whether it's something as basic as like having tracking of the inputs going into the black box, like whatever it might look like. Mm. I think that is the conversation that we all really should be having, especially as we're kind of seeing this world in which AI is kind of the way I feel about AI right now in 2023 is the way I felt about blockchain in 2017, which is like you throw the term in and suddenly all the doors open to you, which is extraordinarily problematic, as we all know, yes. ICO nonsense, but also because, you know, this is a thing that if it's not carefully governed, uh, has the danger of <laughs> really being far more destructive of our society than crypto, frankly, ever could be. But it's encouraging to hear the Europeans uh, at least recognizing that, because to well, me, that is it that that understanding that this is a data architecture, this is a system for managing information in a decentralized context, is the whole story of blockchain. That's I mean, the piece crazy. I wrote that you're referring to from a week ago was was really about like how I found the whole distinction between AI and blockchain or AI and Web three, because there were apparently a bunch of founders in Silicon Valley who had suddenly pivoted from one to the other. You know, no longer doing you know yeah. crypto because it's not the buzzword, but AI is the buzzword. Well, okay, that in itself is annoying because it's just yeah. this sort of like fickle nature of trying to raise money for whatever it is that Silicon Valley suddenly thinks is the in thing. But the bigger issue for me was this idea that you could distinguish between you, you definitely can distinguish between the two, but that there was apparently no relationship between them, right? Yeah. When, in, when in fact, and I think that part of the problem is this gets to gets to your point about. The UK focused on financial services and the US, I think, thinking about apps, which also is largely finance, yeah. um, is that they've, I think, and this is not to blame Satoshi <laughs> per se, but that at the end of the day, like, right from the very beginning of Bitcoin, it was about money. When in fact, what money actually is, is, is always has been, just we don't think about it this way. We think, of a, we think of money as a thing and money is not a thing. It is simply a symbolic representation That's of value. Right. It is a system of information exchange. Always has been, always will be. But it's a particularly, particularly, particularly valuable and, and, and sensitive version. And yes. therefore, we had to build something like Bitcoin around it, right? Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. But we missed it. We said, oh, okay, it's money. It's money. And therefore, all the regulatory framework that got on top of that, all of the conversation, everything got bogged down in about money. When in fact, to hear the Europeans say, no, 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 this is about this sort of underlying architecture of the internet. And they're thinking about what the future of the internet looks like and the governance of that, particularly with the emergence of AI. That's really interesting. I also think it's probably telling that it's coming out of Europe, right? Because they saw the Web 2 era being one of them being basically exploited and manipulated yeah. by large US companies, right? They yeah. see the problems of Web 2 through the lens of those lawsuits and battles with Google and Facebook and Twitter. And, you know, they're all American companies, right? And so there's, a, there's an understanding of the vulnerability of their population to this system that was created out of the United States. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. But also interesting that the, the UK versus US, because maybe both of them are getting it wrong in the sense of making it all about money. But at the same time, you know, one is protecting its hegemony, perhaps. I don't know if that's the only reason why the debate is so fraught in the United States, but it's definitely part of it, right? There's a real nervousness 
about having to give up the the golden goose of Wall Street power and yeah. surveillance. Um, and the UK saying, hey, this is also something we're good at and is our bread and butter. Uh, we might better find a way to actually differentiate ourselves in those dates. Well, here's the thing. So, yeah, I don't want to overstate the European position on this. It's all relative, right? right. Now, but and there's also the lots of critics. There's also... That's right. That's right. It's not that it's perfect by any means, right? It's all just relative. And the focus and the con, you can have a broader conversation in Europe more easily. Whereas in the US or the UK, you're still having to do a lot of dot connecting for people, right? Like to get them to remember or to acknowledge, even in some cases, that this opportunity is about a lot more than just financial services and a lot more than speculative investments. But in Europe, that is an easy conversation to have. Now, here's the context, though. Don't forget. So the European General Data Protection Regulation. General, in fact, GDPR, as it's commonly known, was passed in 2016 and implemented in 2018. So the timing of this, right? So when ICOs were happening, you had this massive world-affecting, you know, precedent-setting regulation that came down in Europe around what you can and can't do with data. So the Europeans have spent a lot of time thinking about data for a while. We don't have something like that in the United States. We have the California Act that came in after GDPR which mirrors a lot of GDPR, right? Which is kind of the closest thing we have in the United States. So anything that's similar about data protection and privacy and consumer protection, all those kinds of things. So it's not surprising. And the parallel, so GDPR passed and the overlap is Mika started, right? So all those discussions, a lot of the same people were in them. So of course, they were going to take this kind of lens, right? Now think back in uh, American, you know, kind of uh, context, what's the the massive giant thing? Dodd-Frank, okay? So some of those folks are still around. It's kind of like what is seen as the political priority around, you know, quote, protection or whatever. And in Europe, it was this data exploitation problem. And in the United States, it was more focused on, and I'm not overstating the importance of Dodd-Frank, that was a while ago. But regardless, the legacy and the shadow Dodd-Frank left, particularly when it comes down to things like this recent banking stuff, it's very, very top of mind for a lot of people. Many of them, again, are still in Washington, right? So it's not surprising, again, that that's our but you have to go back into culturally, why might that be the case? Why are the Europeans so concerned about data more than other stuff? And a lot of this is the nature of the government, you know, how people think about tax, all kinds of stuff come into play. But to your point, part of it also is a bit of European protectionism. We don't want American companies coming in, exploiting our citizens and making tons of profit that never benefits anybody in Europe in any meaningful way. And there's certainly a frame on it that way. But it really is a more, I don't even know how to say this, like the statesmanship and the kind of political orientation you know, look, European politics can be absolutely vicious, like vicious, vicious, vicious. So I don't want to make it sound like it's some sort of, you know, yeoman gentleman kind of situation at all, you know, but there is this kind of orientation towards the general population and their interests. I, I will say that is the case. It's not to say that isn't the case in the United States. Of course it is for some people, you know, but it tends to be a narrower lens and a view. It's shorter term and it's a narrow review. Maybe, uh, sort of, I love this sort of stuff, delving into the history and the cultural roots of these things, because I think it's, I think it is useful given that we are talking about a global technology and how, how yeah. it deals with it to think about how these sort of distinctly different cultural experiences happen. But there is a tradition of allowing the minority voice. And that doesn't necessarily, by the way, mean, you know, a racial minority or mm-hmm. you know, a gender mm-hmm. minority. It just means like the idea of a decentralized polity uh, going right back from the founding days of the United States, right? That you have states' rights and you have local powers and you have all these things that are supposed to balance each other out so that, you know, you don't have this generic uh, interest. A lot of, I think, the culture wars in the United States stem from this desire to protect my specific, very individual interests. And I'm not necessarily part of the great mass. I'm not that. Whereas, you know, Europeans, I think, 
you know, I, again, I'm not not a historian, but I do think that it's it's it is interesting to look back at the arc of history. Like their great concern from 1945 on was that their differences would tear them apart. And that the great European experiment was to try to bring homogeneity. So ironically, yeah. as much as it is a much literally a more fragmented place because you've the multiple languages and histories and everything else, the actual exercise out of Brussels, which of course is the reason Brexit happened, actually, because it's it is in some respects, you know, the the Brexiters in Britain were like the angry, don't you bring your woke politics on me kind of Americans, right? It's this. How dare you sort of create a homogeneity around us? And, and so there is definitely resistance to it, but that exercise is, is part of it. And I was thinking when you were mentioning Dodd-Frank, I was like, well, you know what? Europe had its own deeply, very, very disruptive political moment in the wake of the financial crisis as well, the European financial so. crisis, right? Yep. But in, in fact, it also plays a really important role in the history of Bitcoin and crypto because the Cyprus moment Absolutely. 2013, et cetera, et cetera. But like, it, it's interesting, I think, like the way that the political systems react differently to it. You had in, in Europe now, again, this sort of doubling down in the need to create more uniformity, the need to create consistent rules for everybody so that like we bring everybody along and you don't get Greece going. And if, and that, if that ties us in Germany to have to bail out Greece, then we'll do so, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got this instinct towards the broad interest of the population. Yeah, even you know? more bluntly than that, I think Europe just has a more collectivist, you know, proto-socialist yes. experience about government and the role of government. And that's just not really questioned, you know, whereas right. here, the very idea of government intervention in any way is, is not presumed, certainly not in our current environment and not with, you know, recent American history. So, and politicians, there's that playing into it as well. But also the Europeans have largely felt, you know, we will build a regulatory environment and then people will come and build in it and know what they're building in. And we'll kind of protect first and then, you know, allow flourishing innovation. And the Americans have said, we'll allow flourishing innovation. And then we'll figure out if we, what, if anything we need to do about it. I mean, that's speaking very crudely, but that's kind of generally been, I think, a little bit of the approach. I don't think that's new and I don't think it's necessarily good or bad. Those are just kind of the ways that I think these different cultural experiences, to your point, have grown up over time. But I do think that, you know, the Europeans have a lot of expectations and reliance upon their government in a way that a lot of Americans don't recognize that they do, which is routinely mind-blowing for me, but they don't even recognize what government you know, does for people, or they don't want government to do those things for them, right? Whereas in Europe, I mean, your healthcare, your education, like primary school, all that stuff comes from the government and people understand that that is kind of how things work and they pay a pretty penny for it, right? The tax rates, it's a very different construction of society and the role of government that we have not accepted or whatever, you know, whatever the word is, we certainly have not coalesced around the United States. So the idea in Europe, I think, and again, I'm speaking very broadly because there's yeah. nothing monolithic, right? But there is more of an acceptance of the role of government as setting kind of the terms of engagement in something brand new. Whereas the United States, that is certainly not the way we think about things. If anything, we think of government as, you know, um, putting the brakes on things that are really exciting, you know? Are you looking to fast track your enterprise growth? With tools and solutions from EY, you could run your essential business applications, including private transactions and zero knowledge applications on public Ethereum. From supply chain to procurement to sustainability, EY blockchain's APIs and zero knowledge tools make public Ethereum accessible to all enterprise users. Find out why some of the world's leading companies are building on Ethereum with EY. Visit us at blockchain.ey.com. Now, 
which brings me to a question because you're not just over there assessing the positions of policymakers, but you're obviously building ties and relationships with the crypto community in yeah. Europe. There's very much the, I think it's a bromide, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exaggeration, but this idea that the crypto bro in the United States is a hardcore libertarian. And, and the sort of starting point for imagining what that represents is you know, hard money. It is, it is Bitcoin as the ultimate constraint from the profligate sense. Freedom of money. Right? Yeah. Freedom, you know, that is the big narrative around Bitcoin in the United States. Does the crypto community itself come across as a different set of values in Europe? I mean, there definitely are, I know, because I know a number of them, European, hardline, Austrian economics type people yeah. in that world. But I wonder whether like one of the reasons why you're able to move in a different direction there is because the community itself doesn't convey that. Because I think one of the things is like it, what it does in the United States is it creates a backlash. It's like there's that's exactly what a government is going to want to try to resist, right? Is that is that sort of uh, anarchist almost like position that that, that people brace, and then whether or not it's the right position or not, it definitely breeds a backlash, and that's the, that's the problem. So, what is the European? crypto community look like yeah so, so again i mean as you know you know it's not monolithic and i think it really you must have interviewed every single one of them by now sheila so i, I know, know them all exactly right exactly but not even that i mean at a country level it's not which i think is actually really important to note right so you kind of have like the the we could almost call it like the berlin school and like the paris school you know right. and the London School, the Lisbon School. Yeah. And each one of those cities you named actually does have these emerging blockchain hubs. That's right. More than emerging, they're quite quite significant. Quite yeah. robust, right? So yeah. that I think is something that is that is important to note, and they are quite different. I think that you can just hop from conference to conference to kind of see, is there a pan-European crypto community? Nah, kind of. It's burgeoning a bit, but they really remain more country isolated and working within their respective, uh, in many cases, city. Here's a different question. How do they go about lobbying? Because everyone lobbies maybe different ways. We don't really lobby in Europe. Well, then how do they get what they want out of their MEPs or you know commissioners in Brussels? Well, here's the difference, right? Most of them have been building in light of Mika, and Mika has had you know some some sort of pulls to it, like some sort of like pretty clear signaling around Mika for some time. But was there feedback from the community? I mean, like Mika just wasn't created in a vacuum, surely. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of education. I think. I think. I think not. We did a lot. Of, I did a lot of education, you know, with with people with my, in my last role and others, just kind of going in and talking about, you know, what this opportunity was and what it meant. And there have been, I think, folks who've gone in and had those conversations for sure. And also a lot of education. There are more kind of technically minded people in the European Parliament, the European Commission, folks who can experiment with the technology, have played with the technology, understand the technology, you know, some of whom we know, Michael, right? So a lot of those people, I think, were quite influential in explaining what this was. They brought in a bunch of academics and had consultations with academics. It was a very robust process. There were all these private consultations. They got roundtables together and they heard from different points of view and all this kind of stuff. It's all very, you know, genteel the way it's done, right? It's all these different kinds of organizations that happen um, and, and conversations. I think, and not to say it doesn't happen in Washington, but I do think that the crypto community, again, remains until very recently, I think, wasn't so much European in nature. It was German and French and Swiss, certainly Swiss, Crypto Valley and Zug, right? right. And There's a very I wouldn't say Portuguese area. as much as like Lisbon has a bunch of expats who all live there who aren't necessarily native Portuguese or native to Portugal, but have, have moved there, you know, right. for a variety of different reasons. So those communities have sprung up and are quite innovative, but they weren't necessarily trying to influence like German policy around this stuff, right? A lot of them were Swiss foundations because those rules go way back and they were kind of working in different parts of Europe based out of a Swiss foundation model. And that was kind of what people did. And then as Mika started and a couple of things were seen as sacrosanct, 
there was definitely influencing happening there around how do you think about NFTs or DeFi in particular and all along the way. But again, it's a public process, a long process. And it isn't so much that folks were like going into Brussels and running around Brussels, though people run around Washington, there's weirdly more accessibility in a way. And so I think they were soliciting input very actively from a variety of different people, particularly academics, folks like me at the forum, places like that. They're sort of, you know, go-to places to understand the technology, not so much the rhetoric on technology, the technology itself, which is interesting. Well, it's Very just also refreshing to actually understand yeah. technology as opposed to which, you know, bucket of humanity am I lumping this particular That's right. people, right? That's right. And so um, I, I will say, again, again, you know, I don't want to, because far from perfect, right? However, it does represent an awful lot of self-education and learning on the part of a number of people from a variety of different countries across the European Parliament and Commission in these different uh, European countries that I think were very committed to understanding. And you're seeing the same thing with AI right now. People really educating themselves about AI, trying to understand like, what is AGI? What does that mean? And kind of, there's a bit more, and again, I don't want to make this sound so rosy because it can be very vicious, but I do think that there's kind of a healthy humility around it. You know, like this stuff is hard, you know, it is very complicated. That does not mean I should dismiss it. You know what I'm saying? which I do think we see in other parts of the world. I think we see a little more of like a, it's all gobbledygook and it doesn't really matter, you know, kind of approach mm. to things that are really complicated and challenging. And a lot of this is the incentives we have around how people are elected and what their jobs are. You know, being an MEP isn't necessarily the same thing as being a US senator. It's a different kind of like, sometimes like being an MP, for example, right? Like some elections are hotly contested. Some they're like, someone please run for this job. You know, it's, yeah. it's a different kind of thing. Overall, I think all this roots back, though, into the culture of these different places and kind of what the expectation is around how policy is made, how long it takes, what the role is uh, of Europe, which is still being sorted out right? even now. It hasn't been that long that Europe's existed as a concept. So the role of Europe versus the role of the individual countries, what role it is when you have when your country has the presidency, all of those things come into play, right? Uh, and, and I think we have to give a lot of credit to the French, ultimately, who in the last presidency in Europe were really eager to push this through and get it passed and made a tremendous amount of effort and put a lot on the line to get this thing all the way across the line, in part because I think they really wanted to attract a lot of industry you know, to France, right? So all of this, there's actually hilariously, well, I don't know if hilariously is the right word, but a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was this event in Paris, I was not at this event, called Choose France, where basically they were like, here are all the reasons you tech people, yeah. but really lovely people mm-hmm. should come to France and like HQ in France, right? I, contrast, can you imagine that happening in Washington? Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine? You can't, of course you can't imagine, right? It's like yeah. wild. Yeah. Like this is an event. Well, the assumption actually, is that you're always going to be here anyway, because it's, you know, the United States is the place most innovative, that's right. that's right. most whatever. And, and look, it still has, it still has huge influence in the world of tech and everything else. No, one, no one's, there's not walk away from the fact that it is still, in many respects, the epicenter of the world of tech. But it's certainly interesting to see. Until you ask. I mean, I think some would say that's China, but, you know, <laughs> there it is. I, I suppose, but I think that you've still, you know, look, well, there's different ways to, to, to look at it and think about it. But And it's not to say that that, that future isn't enormously at risk. It, it truly is, in my opinion. But there's a, just a weight of money more than anything else that I think the United States brings to the table. Um, you talk about Europe, and it's a relatively recent concept. And it's still coming to terms with who it is and what it is. But I think that one of the things that's really challenging about the AI world is that these some of these deeper questions about what is truth, what is who, who, yeah. you, what is a human, what is you know, 
are, are actually going to, in some respects, start to weed their way into these bigger questions about what is a nation, what is a government, what is everything else. So the fact that you mentioned that there's a conversation around this, I'm very interested in the fact that AI narrative is very, is, is, it feels very bleak to me. And it's understandable. Hollywood for ages has been telling us that, that these machines are going to destroy us. And now we've got a bunch of scientists all telling us that, oh my God, if we don't stop building this stuff, it is going to destroy us. And on top of that, I just think like people are getting freaked out by the fact that we can't tell the difference between what is a fake Pope wearing Balenciaga jacket and, or not, right? And all of that is sort of undermining some of these sort of bedrocks of faith in institutions and everything else. And I just personally believe that somewhere or another, we actually have to shift to a more positive narrative. I've been sort of jokingly referring to this Monty Python skit from the, the, the early 1970s. Uh, it's called the the fairy tale of Happy Valley, and and there there were no discontents or grumblers because Good King Otto had put to death all the unhappy people. Right, um, right, right. And so it's very hard to tell people just be happy. This doesn't really make sense. But on the other hand, like we've just there's a certain very negative narrative right now that I don't think is constructive because this is an open source technology, which will just be picked up with by anybody anyway. And the rogues will come on. You're almost like writing your own death sentence if you, if you are going to be negative. You have to like, how do we find a way to look at this technology and say, here's its good stuff, here's its bad stuff. There's plenty of amazing solutions that could be solved by AI that could fix so much of the world's problems. And I just wonder whether or not like, there's that level of thinking going on in Europe? And are they thinking about, okay, how do we manage the challenges? Is Web3 part of that solution? And therefore, you know, how do we sort of, how does Europe part, chart its own path to a, future, a digital future that's actually not so dystopian, but actually has these positive aspects? Yeah. Well, the conversation is very robust. It, again, is about the technology versus the companies building in the space, which is a healthy distinction, I think, and an important one. It isn't so rooted just in antitrust, which is the obsession in Washington, which is an important one, but it's it's mm. one piece of a much bigger pie, right? Because the reality in open source technology is, is you don't need a giant company to do something necessarily. Uh, the the scarier thing is that somebody you know releases some code in an open source way and someone takes it and does something terrible with it that has no company or whatever around. There's no, it's a very different, I think, parade of horribles that can attach mm. than like you build the next Facebook or whatever, and everyone gets mad about it. I mean, it, you know, it, anyway, antitrust has limitations, and that's a very Washington-obsessed, I think, um, orientation to things. Now, more than that, I think, though, is is I actually found that letter uh, somewhat distressingly comical because the idea that, A, it, it presupposes tech inevitability, which, you know, right. not a lot of it, but that's interesting, right? Interesting yeah. perspective. Number two, it presupposes that Americans can act right. unilaterally in some fashion yeah. to stop yeah. Tech inevitability, which is hilarious and absurd and so arrogant, I can't even like process. This stuff is now ridiculous. Ridiculous, right? The idea that you're ignoring what's happening in the Gulf, what's happening in Israel, what's happening in Australia, what's happening in all over ASEAN. I mean, like, come on, as you and I well know, you know, Web3 adoption was like, we had a whole series on what was happening in other parts of the world. I mean, looking at what's happening in in Sub Saharan Africa and Latin Am. So the idea that the Americans could kind of come in and make some decision and that would somehow stop all. It's just, it's ridiculous. So that's not a thing. I think the Europeans look at that and kind of, I mean, I'm again, you know, speaking broadly, kind of laugh because they're like, why does America think it controls everything all the time? And it's a very fair question. But some also, very high profile Americans, people are putting their names on that letter. Like, and we, oh, 
former chief scientist of Google. I mean, we've got to listen to him, yep. right? I mean, I don't know. It just, it's just like there's a certain weight of personality. There's a cult of personality also around some of these scientists that I think is, is, is problematic. But anyway. What you'd want to have is a global conversation about that. Right. And that is not what is happening. That's the, the point. We have is a pan is a European conversation, which covers yeah. a significant number of countries, right? Like which they have, whether harmonization or not, at least they have the route into having a conversation. Now, not to say there aren't global AI discussions happening. There are. But it's a global problem. It's a global problem. Yeah. And so kind of the idea that the American government or Congress could do something and that would somehow hit the big giant pause button on everything, it's just not how any of this works. AI scientists are all over the world. They are often coordinating, often not. You know, they're in universities, they're in companies, they're in they're all they're all over the place. So again, there is this uniquely arrogant frame on things. This is also the reason why, you know, if you go into Europe as an American. And you talk about us versus them, which most Americans tend to do because Americans have a really hard time shaking the view of America as the center of the universe. And I say this because it's something that I had to unlearn as an as a you know born and raised native person here. I did kind of shake that worldview in the first time I took a very global role, which was you know twenty years ago, uh, and recognized that you know that's not whether that is true or not from the gravity of you know funding and then science and whatever it's certainly not how other people see the world for sure right and i would argue even that fundamental premise is wrong because it happens everywhere regardless when you go into an american in europe and you kind of talk about us versus them you immediately get dismissed as i think you should be because europeans are thinking primarily about europe i think of like mika and europe as kind of like the turtle and the hare right it's like slow and steady. This thing has been going for a while. It's not to say that the UK or US couldn't come in and kind of lap Europe and launch something more nimbly and faster that was maybe better. Who knows? But Europe's always going to have that kind of consistent, slow, steady progression to something. And again, I don't want to like overstate that's mm -hmm. good or bad. It's not a normative statement. It's just to say, I think the European approach to AI is similar. It's more comprehensive. It's looking at all the different angles of it. It takes into consideration everything from equity, you know, to climate, to the science, to the global implications, to the, you know, all of these different things, right? Like it's it's very, these comprehensive consultations and they're more holistic. They're slow, very slow. And so if AI is the danger that that scientist letter said it was, which I think many of us, you know, it, it, that letter is problematic for so many reasons, not the least of which is it leaves out so many of the people who actually did the science that said that and like doesn't credit them, which is a whole other issue. And all those folks have been fired from the companies, right? So it's a whole other, we can get into all that, but you know, that, that's, I think Twitter can give you that if you're looking for that kind of information. It's very true. Regardless, if we think it is the danger we think it is, it needs a fast solution. I'm not sure the Europeans are ever going to be able to get there, but I do think what they eventually come up with will be very, very comprehensive and thought through. It just may not happen in time to alleviate any of the harms that I think many of us are very, very concerned about. Right. I'm going to wrap up here because I think this, this brings us right back full circle here that whether or not Europe is able to come up with a fast solution, I think that that does seem unlikely. The point you made in the midst of that commentary just then, I think is really critical is that whether it's AI, but certainly it is Web3 as well, but very much AI right now, it just has to be a global conversation. It it just, exactly. There's just no way in the world you can look at this technology. And as you said, it's absurd to think the United States could just like do something and stop it. It just can't. So what's interesting here, if we go back to the beginning of this conversation, where we talked about like, you know, this, this charrette that we had at consensus at consensus when, uh, you know, there was a discussion about whether or not there was a, 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 an international regulatory framework for crypto that was relevant or the United States had to do its thing first. Like at the end of the day, I think there's, gonna, there's this recognition that the US just, we've reached a point where technology 
of technology where the US just can't control it anymore. It, you know, the 20th century, it was the world's policeman. It was the world's biggest economy. It could surveil all the money. It could control everything. And therefore, treaties and all the other, you know, rule sets that the world followed fell within it. And you know what? It was a relatively benign 20th century empire, but it has many, many problems. Uh, now, it just, whether you like it or not, it just can't. And so, so this is what's going to be interesting about the direction of both of these technologies and where the regulatory process goes is the degree to which the United States is able to recognize that it can't just like just seeing the failure. I don't know if you watched the last episode of Succession. And I was a, you know, I have not yet. No spoilers. I'm, I'm not, not going to give any spoilers. But at this one <laughs> point where one of the characters goes, you know what? We're just bullshit. We're just bullshit. <laughs> like, is this like, Acknowledgement that, like, you just as much as you think you're the kings and the, the leaders of everything, there's just you just can't control it, and and so you know there's something about that which is refreshing and scary at the same time. But I look, you know, Sheila, thank you for your insight. As always, it's always fun to do these ones. Uh, glad we got to to just like do a bit of a wheel too. We didn't talk about Asia. We're going to come back and talk about Asia uh, yep. some time. So this, so apologies to all the listeners in. Singapore and Hong Kong and Thailand and so much going uh, on. everyone else. There's a lot going on over there that we could have addressed with. Alrighty, that's all we have time for for now for Money Reimagined. Of course, uh, make sure you do listen to us weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And as I said at the opening of the show, we'd love to hear from you. So, you know, email us at podcast at coindesk.com uh, subject line Money Reimagined. That's all. Come back next week. I'm Michael Casey. Thanks for joining us. Bye. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. This episode has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our executive producer is Jared Swartz. Our theme song is Aida by Neon Beach. Download wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Or you can reach out to me directly at Michelle with one L at coindesk.com. Thanks for listening. 